Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, a comprehensive wound resolution and UHMS accredited hyperbaric medicine practice with four offices to serve you. Find us on the web at www.hbomdga.com. Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us on Top Docs Radio. This is C.W. Hall, your host, and I'm very pleased to be joined by several of uh, Atlanta's finest physicians uh, that are uh, in the community helping patients that are dealing with breast cancer. We're kind of continuing on a little bit of a series that we've had here focusing on this issue. Last week, we were pleased to be joined by several patients who were survivors of breast cancer, learning a little bit about their stories and resources in the community, uh, like Breast Cancer Survivors Network and Chemouflage. And uh, this week, we're going to talk with the, the physicians that uh, comprise the multi-specialty team that uh, a patient tends to need to uh, travel their journey from diagnosis through uh, to cancer survivorship. And with that, we're going to go ahead and get right into it because uh, we've got a full slate of guests. So. Uh, I'll start off with uh, Dr. Amerson of breast, can uh, breast care specialist here in Atlanta at, at Northside Hospital. And the reason why I want to start with you is because from what I understand as I was prepping for the show that once I go from the, the, the state of diagnosis um, with my primary care physician, I uh, will then link up with someone from a breast surgery uh, specialist because that's one of the primary means of treating this disease. Is that correct? That's one of the first things we've got to do. We've got to get rid of the, the, the lump or the tumor, wherever it may be. Correct. Usually the first step would be to do some sort of surgery um, to remove the, the cancer. And so usually we're sort of the first stop once a patient's been diagnosed. And also in our office, even if a patient's feeling a lump, they'll come to our office and we'll be able to diagnose the breast cancer because we have mammogram and ultrasound within the office and the capabilities of doing the needle biopsies. So some of the patients we diagnose on our own um, and others come you know, once they've been diagnosed, like at Northside, if they come in for a mammogram or ultrasound, they find something, they'll come see us at that point, and then we'll do the workup to figure out what the breast, the, be the breast way, the best way for them to have surgery. Um, sometimes, though, they need chemotherapy first before we do that. So we kind of make that decision in conjunction with the, you know, with the medical oncologist about the next step. And, you know, here in the, in, in, in the studio today, we've got you know, folks that are representing, you know, several of the facets of the, of the care team, you're, you're with the breast surgery uh, focus, and of course we have Dr. Bowen with uh, medical oncology and Dr. Wiggers in radiation oncology, and of course Dr. Chang, who's going to help folks with the reconstructive process from a plastics perspective later. And the, the collaboration, even though you guys are from four different physician practices, you're not all in one group, uh, four individual groups, you work very, very closely together from what I understand as we sat around talking a little bit before the show. Um, you know, one of the one of the patient survivors last week talked about the fact that she has so many physicians, but, um, you know, in talking with you all, you, you kind of laughed and talked about the fact that we're constantly texting or calling each other. You know, tell me how that flows for you. Uh, when I get my diagnosis, I come to you, we're, whatever means it's going to be, whether it's a non-invasive study that says, yes, we've got some something. How does it, you know, once we get that di diagnosis, there is definitely an abnormality there. Are you, what's the diagnostic, what's the final diagnosis? What's the, do you, is it needle biopsy or is it a surgical, you know, we're going to take something right. surgically. How do we determine what we're d dealing with? Um, in this day and age, it always is a needle biopsy. 
um, because what I told patients, I actually had a patient a couple of weeks ago that really said, can't we just go to surgery? You know it's a cancer. I was like, but I don't really know it's a cancer because it makes a difference what kind of surgery you do. And these days we go to surgery for treatment, not for diagnosis, right. because now we do these core biopsies, um, whether it be with mammogram or ultrasound, um, and then get the diagnosis that way. Because when I go to surgery, I want to know it's a cancer. I need to do a bigger, take more tissue, do a lumpectomy, sample the lymph nodes. You know, if I'm just going for the diagnosis rather than the treatment, then we just go to surgery and just take the area out. But we're not concerned about margins. We don't sample the lymph nodes. So ultimately, the patient's going to have to go through two surgeries because even though I think it's a cancer, I'm not going to do a wide lumpectomy and sample her lymph nodes and, you know, put her through all that when sometimes it's not a cancer. You know, so Chris, from, from what I understand, the breast tissue on different ladies is is different. Some people may have what you might call a lumpy breast that that feels like it's something, but it may not be. Right, and you know, so oftentimes when people have dense, lumpy breasts, we do ultrasound on top of mammogram because that helps us find things better. Um, ultimately, though, when I, once we've diagnosed that they have a cancer, the next step is to do a breast MRI. Because okay. MRI is kind of the latest, greatest way of looking at the breast tissue. To kind of, And about 3 to 4% of the time, we'll find either that the cancer is bigger or we'll find a cancer in the other breast. So something will change what our original plan for lumpectomy is. With the, One of the patients mentioned that she had had an MRI last week and talked about how the lymph nodes really lit up on the, on the study. Now, mm-hmm. with that, there's no contrast. It's just the actual the, the, the change in size of the lymph nodes that would let you be able to identify them, or is there some There is. There's actually what's called gadolinium. So it's okay. a, you do have an injection, and what it looks at, it shows increased blood flow. So the thing about the MRI, not only does it show you the anatomy, because we can see lumps and things like that, but it tells us about the physiology and what's going on with the breast. So the gadolinium will light up more for abnormal lymph nodes or the cancer. And so oftentimes, you know, you'll have a cancer that may be one centimeter, but there's associated DCIS sort of stringing out, you know, that may be five or six centimeters that we don't see on the mammogram but we see it on the MRI. And so, you know, after that, they have to go through an MRI-guided biopsy, which is not the funnest thing, but um, but they go through that because if we find cancer that's, you know, four or five centimeters away from it, then ultimately we know we need to do a mastectomy. And that would give you the power to actually, that, that kind of study gets you down to where you're seeing very small ones maybe you wouldn't be able to palpate or see. Exactly. So that's why, you know, preoperatively we'd always want to do an MRI first. So it sounds like with our diagnostics, whether they're totally non-invasive or maybe partly invasive with a needle, for example, mm-hmm. it sounds like you're able to nowadays get down to where you really have a pretty good roadmap of, from a surgeon's perspective, where do I need to be, where do I need to go? And with that, how do you determine what type of surgery you need to do? Um, mostly it depends on the size of the breast and how large the cancer is and where it's located. Um, and then also we take into consideration what the other risk factors of the patient has, because if her mother or sister and her grandmother have breast cancer, I would sort of look at them and go, you might want to think about doing mastectomies on both sides just because of the increased risk. You know, if someone has the gene, that's another reason to, you know, the breast cancer gene to consider doing mastectomies. But as far as lumpectomy versus mastectomy, um, location of the, the cancer, how large it is, what I think the cosmetic defect is going to be, you know, if it's right behind the nipple and we know they have to remove the nipple, you know, I've had patients just do a lumpectomy, but a lot of them will consider just doing a mastectomy at that point just because when you take the front of the breast, it ends up being smaller and you don't have the projection. Um, so, 
anytime. And then it's always patient's choice, too, because I have patients with no family history with a tiny little cancer, and they go, I want them both off. And what do you, you know, you, it's really the patient's choice. I always tell them that they're the ones that have to live with or without them. Can you go forward in your life not worried about doing mammograms every six months, MRI, you know? And so a lot of times they'll choose to, to remove both breasts, but I always feel like it's their choice because I have seen patients come back five years later, ten years later with a second breast cancer, and if I had told them they couldn't, I'd just, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel very happy, you know. Right. So, so I always feel like it's their choice, but I always tell them that, you know, you, you don't need to have this. You know, there's, there's no reason you need to, to do this, but then they just go, but I really want to. I, I know that in the, you know, in the, in the entertainment industry, obviously there's been some celebrities who've done that that are well-known that uh, that were discovered. And I think that, you know, from what I limited uh, information that I have about them, they may have had some family background that made them think that they were at a higher risk, so they just wanted to treat it all at once. But from your perspective, as a breast surgeon talking to a patient, you, you know, you feel pretty confident that when you say that if I do a lumpectomy or a breast conserving surgery, that based on everything I'm seeing here, you should be in good shape. Yes, it could potentially come back, but you you feel confident. You, you wouldn't necessarily you know say it's okay. You 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 don't advocate for doing a dual mastectomy every time you find no, a breast cancer. Absolutely not. That's a, you know really you know all the studies have shown that whether you do lumpectomy or mastectomy, it doesn't affect your prognosis. Whether or not you need chemotherapy, all of that's pretty much set in stone before we ever do the surgery, you know, whether or not you need chemo. So it's not, the only difference is that it does take away the need for radiation usually. You know, there's some cases where you might have to have radiation after mastectomy, but when we do lumpectomy, you do have to follow it with radiation usually. So so as we get in, we, we're, we're, we're doing our surgical treatment, which, as I said earlier, is kind of a, you know, deemed a, like kind of a primary treatment. We've got to remove the tumor um, and get to what everybody knows is clean margins and that, and that kind of thing. At what point, you, you obviously, you, when you get a patient in and you're dealing with them, you're starting to get on the phone and you're starting to talk to the other members of the team and obviously Dr. Bowen and medical oncology being one of those people that you're calling early on. How does it flow for you? You know, when I'm the patient, we're, we're going through this, you know, at what point do I get introduced to your other specialists right. here? Usually it's after the surgery because Dr. Bowen's going to want to know how big is the cancer or the lymph nodes involved. Um, sometimes the patients are really worried and I let them go see, you know, I say, if you need to go see Dr. Bowen first, but she really can't make many recommendations until she really knows what we're dealing with, you know. Um, a lot of things have changed now as far as whether or not a cancer gesture receptor positive or negative or HER2 new positive. You know, there's certain aspects of the cancer that we'll know that we're going to know that the patient's going to need chemotherapy regardless of what the lymph nodes show, regardless of how big the tumor, you know, back in the day, it used to be if the cancer's one centimeter, we do chemo. You know, we thought we were pretty smart then, but we've learned that size doesn't matter. Um, and there's a lot more other studies that are more important that help determine chemotherapy. So if there's a, a patient that's going to have reconstruction and I know they're going to need chemo, a lot of times I'll send them to Christina, you know, if it's a, a large tumor or if, if it's in the lymph nodes, you know, I'd rather send her to Christina first because then we consider what's called neoadjuvant chemotherapy. That's the where, one that shrinks it a little bit Right. So okay. we go ahead and do the chemo first. And I'd say about, actually, it's more than 20% now with the progetta. I've seen mm -hmm. total response when we do the mastectomy. There's no cancer left, you know. And so, but it's really more of a, if we're doing a mastectomy, it's more of a let's do it first just in case there's a complication from the surgery that may delay 
you know, the, the chemotherapy. And then sometimes the cancer's just a little on the biggish side for a lumpectomy. It's not going to look good when I actually do it. And if we know that she needs chemotherapy first, send her to Christina because what she'll do is do the chemotherapy, shrink the cancer, and then I can do a smaller lumpectomy. So cosmetically, it's going to look better. So, so. that neoadjuvant medications might be able to, uh, re- you're saying, reduce the, the extent of surgery, might possibly be able to pr- reduce the, the need for a mastectomy. Absolutely. Yeah, but it doesn't change prognosis, you know, even if we're doing it three months early or anything, that really doesn't change. But, but I always tell the patient that it's just an elegant way of doing it because you actually know whether or not the chemotherapy is working. So I usually see them back after their third treatment for an ultrasound. And if it's not shrinking, I get on my, get on my phone, Christina, what do we do? Let's skip the last one. Let's switch to the other one, you know. And so that saves the patient from having to go through chemotherapy that's not working. I see. You know, so so even there's no prognostic benefit, I think there's the elegance of just doing the chemo first and knowing what. And the patient likes it because they're able to know that all that stuff they're going through, they're getting results. And that's always just good for the patient to have that confidence booster that, you know, this is actually doing something. It's interesting to hear how much choice, you know, obviously in certain circumstances, the, the lesion itself is going to kind of dictate what we do. But, I mean, it sounds like in many cases the patient can look at their situation and actually have some A, B, C, or A or B kind of choices as to what they're going to do and and at least have some measure of of input on what their course of treatment is. Absolutely. And and another situation is that the patient may have large breasts and, you know, they've got a a decent-sized cancer, but sometimes I'll send them over to Dr. Chang because sometimes we actually do a reduction-type surgery removing the cancer at the same time. So the patient's happy. We get amazing margins because I'm taking out a lot of tissue. You know, so there's all different ways to play with it as far as what kind of surgery is the best for the patient. But you have to look at their family history, the size of the tumor, the location, how large their breasts are. But there's there's a lot of different options in how we treat them surgically. With all of the recent focus in the, you know, in our communities nowadays with breast cancer awareness on, on you know, obviously mental levels. I mean, in the NFL game, you can see them wearing pink and in their uniforms. Um, obviously, many, many people are, are aware of breast cancer as an issue. Um, you know, we're talking with Dr. Amerson of Breast Cancer Specialists about the treatment of breast cancer here on Top Docs Radio. And in your experience over time, is there kind of a, a typical stage that you'd find more often than not people are kind of at this point in their cancer when they're coming to you, or is it really just kind of across the board now that more people are doing kind of earlier diagnosis or earlier searching for it? I think we tend to find it earlier because the mammograms find it, you know, hopefully when they're still at the small stage where they're only in the milk ducts and things like that, but we still have the patients that come in with it sticking out of their skin because they just kind of ignored it or, you know, or things like that. So so it's one of those things where we still see the ones that are fairly advanced. But, but I think in general we find them smaller because I think people are aware about screening and how important that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because of our time, I'd like to go ahead and bring Dr. Bowen in. This is Dr. Christina Bowen, medical oncology here, and, and obviously an integral part of the team. And so when you get the call from Dr. Amerson, hey, I'm dealing with this patient here. We're, this is our situation. Tell me kind of what's my experience going to be for you? How do you, how do you approach me as a patient at that point? So uh, we get you in uh, as soon as possible, obviously, and go over the results of any tests that have been done to date, typically a biopsy report, pathology report, and talk about 
um, what that tells us. And what I always tell patients is every tumor is unique. Um, every patient's unique too, of course, but uh, we try to pigeonhole tumors to some degree so that we can get a handle on how it's going to behave and how, how we should best treat that patient's cancer. So, uh, so we meet, we talk about breast cancer treatment in a general sense and then kind of uh, double down on, on specific recommendations for treating your particular breast cancer. Um, to some degree, in some patients, there may be some options with regards to type of surgery, uh, with regards to types of systemic therapies. So we, it's usually a pretty long, that first visit's usually a pretty involved, uh, relatively lengthy visit. Um, sometimes I'll see the patients from the surgeon before the patients had the surgery, particularly if there's a question about what type of surgery is best and should we do chemotherapy prior to surgery or after surgery or does the patient need chemotherapy at all to that, to, uh, for that matter. So it can be quite a lengthy discussion. Usually by the end of that first visit, we have at least the beginnings of a, of a treatment plan uh, or an idea of where to go from there and do we need to do other testing, S body scans, for example, to see if there's evidence of cancer having spread somewhere else mm -hmm. uh, and or additional pathology testing on the tumor itself to help squeeze out a little bit more information from that tumor to help clarify uh, what the proper treatment would be. Is there a particular type of tumor that uh, that you would think that maybe we could shrink it, you know, maybe before we go to surgery? Are there some types that you kind of think, okay, some, as we called it, neoadjuvant therapies would help with this more than something else where we got to be maybe more aggressive and, and get right. the surgery right away? So two main factors. Number one, as, as Dr. Amberson mentioned, is when the uh, breast factors and tumor factors, if the breasts are small and the patient's hoping to conserve them, or if, if there are particular surgical considerations whereby the surgeon says, look, it might be to your best uh, interest concerning what the goal is of the surgery, whether you want to conserve the breast or not, might make sense to try to shrink this uh, prior to surgery. So that's one consideration. The other consideration is absolutely there are some types of breast cancers that respond very, very well um, to, to therapy, uh, including preoperative therapies, whether it's chemotherapy-based oftentimes. Um, in some cases, if a tumor is known to be HER2 new positive, we've got some great relatively new drugs, including Herceptin, uh, Trastuzumab, which can target those tumors and really have, have hit home runs, I'd say, in the past decade or so. We really are able to very effectively treat certain types of breast cancer in particular uh, and can get them to really literally in a, melt away in some cases. Um, so, uh, yes, that we take that into account. So there's all sorts of bits of information to throw into the pot and stir it up and, and see where we are and see what, what makes the best uh, sense for that tumor with, uh, and for that woman, obviously. What's the what's my course going to be like? I mean, you know, obviously, I, depending on what we're doing, it, it will vary. But, I mean, is there about how long does it take uh, whenever I have to go and get some uh, chemotherapeutic medicines, whether they're before my surgery or, or after? Right. So typically uh, the course of chemotherapy is determined by a lot of factors. Uh, for example, whether it's in the lymph nodes or not, um, you know, how, how, to some degree how large the tumor is, and then some of the other pathology characteristics. Is it the type of breast cancer that has the hormone receptors on it or not? Is it the type that has the HER2 new protein or not? So we factor all that in when we're trying to pick a regimen, because as you're probably aware, there are a lot of different sort of recipes out there, regimens, different drugs uh, in each, uh, different numbers of cycles or treatments and different intervals of treatment. So there's 
um, a hodgepodge of regimens to choose from in some situations. In some situations, it's very clear what the best is. Um, so uh, depending on which regimen, a chemotherapy regimen, we've recommended to a patient, it's usually a, a series of treatments all done as an outpatient in our office. We have an infusion center in our office, so the patient comes to see the oncologist usually the same day that she's going to get the treatment, and uh, we chat and make sure everything's doing okay, see if we need to make any adjustments to what's happening, to, to what she's getting that, uh, that day in the treatment room, and then she goes back to the treatment room, and most of the treatments, they can vary from, uh, well, sort of best case scenario, sometimes 15 minutes uh, infusion, and, and the longest ones sometimes are several hours or half a day maybe for, for the uh, infusion itself, and, and, then, and then she's done until the next cycle. So depending on which regimen uh, sh that patient is receiving, it may be four treatments, it may be six total, it may be eight total, they may be spaced every two to three weeks, okay. occasionally weekly. So there's quite, quite a variety. It can, it can uh, vary quite a bit from one patient to the next. I was kind of surprised, really. I, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know a whole lot about the, you know, the cancer side of things, at least in terms of the, the chemotherapy, you know, side of things. So my assumption has always been that you just, you feel terrible and you're, you're throwing up all the time and, and all of that. But what, one of the patients that, you know, that we talked to last week talked about the fact that, you know, she had some pretty aggressive uh, medications given to her and her biggest thing was really being tired more than anything else. So I was kind of surprised to hear that. And I guess the, the, you know, the changes that have, you know, taken place in the, the medicines that are available have kind of at least mitigated to some extent some of the unpleasantness that one might feel from some of these pretty powerful medicines. Are, would, would that be accurate? Yeah, that's absolutely accurate. I think giving chemotherapy uh, in you know, 2014 is an entirely different experience from 20 years ago uh, or even 10 years ago. Um, one thing that's come a long way are the supportive care medicines, the um, anti-nausea medicines that we give routinely now before you know, uh, most types of chemotherapy really uh, for most patients work beautifully and there's a lot of good anti-nausea anti medicine options out there so we can usually almost always find something that will work very well for that patient so some patients go through chemotherapy without any nausea that's great um, so yeah that's that's come a long way we also have uh, recently um, been able to use growth factors which are little injections that we give in the office to boost the blood counts to help prevent mm -hmm. You know, problems and complications that used to arise from, from drops uh, in the blood counts. The That'd be count. one of the big things to make you feel tired without your energy, that kind of stuff? In or? some cases, although typically chemotherapy itself can certainly cause fatigue. That's uh, one of the uh, side effects that we bump up against most often. And I encourage people to be as active as possible as they go through chemotherapy. Um, most of my patients want to work through chemotherapy, and most of them are able to with some adjustments in their work schedule often, but uh, I encourage people to be active. Exercise is the one thing that's been shown to help uh, relieve fatigue or reduce fatigue for people going through chemotherapy, so I encourage patients to be as active as possible. Um, but getting back to what you initially said, I think a lot of patients who are anticipating starting chemotherapy are have... Um, maybe done too much reading on the internet, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> I was or to ask you about that. How much have people read yeah. when they get to you? Uh, un unfortunately, uh, well, it's good to stay educated and get ahead of things, but uh, not everything, I always tell patients, not everything you read on the internet will apply to you. <laughs> In fact, a lot of it doesn't. And, you know, that you don't know when you're newly diagnosed and you're scared and you're, you're maybe floundering uh, initially for, for some help, for some information. You talk to your friends and your relatives and get on the internet and I spend a lot. <clears throat> excuse me. I spend a lot of that first visit trying to basically 
talk people off the ledge that they've gotten themselves on in, in terms of anticipating how awful it's going to be. Right. And I try to be honest about, well, this is what could happen, but this is what usually happens. And I think, you know, I think it's not going to be as bad as you expect. Most patients say that first treatment is the worst just because of the anticipation ahead of time. And most people tell me uh, by the time of the next treatment, oh, it was nothing as bad as what I thought it would be. So that's, uh, that's what I'm you know, hoping for, working towards. Obviously, with, with Google, you know, you can go on and you'll get thousands of hits for uh, information. Um, but in your opinion, do you feel like there's some resources out there online or, or elsewhere, whether it's community time? You know, I know that Northside, for example, has, you know, kind of uh, large resources available for uh, folks that are dealing with cancer, both women and men. But if I wanted to go on the Internet and, and you're, you're telling me, hey, this would be a good place for you to get, you know, some information that I trust and feel like could be useful. Is there is there such a place or do you feel like really just talking to your physician is really the really more or less the best? I think when it comes to treatment related questions and side effects, probably talking to your physician is the smartest way to go because there's just so much information conflicting and confusing information out there. And we, I mean, that's, I, I see myself primarily as a patient educator uh, to some degree, is teaching patients uh, way ahead of starting chemo what to expect and call us for this and, uh, you know, this is kind of to be expected. And, and we, we, we do a lot of patient education in our office, uh, particularly for patients going through chemotherapy. So that I would um, suggest patients talk to, talk to me about, uh, talk to us about. In terms of learning about breast cancer and staging and, and kind of uh, big picture kinds of questions about breast cancer, there are a lot of good sites out there. Um, yeah, I'd say the American uh, Society for Clinical Oncology, the uh, ASCO, is a very good website, um, both for physicians and they have a good patient uh, website as well, uh, the uh, National Comprehensive Cancer Network website, NCCN, um, is a very good website for both uh, oncologists as well as they've got a nice uh, uh, website for patients as well for learning about cancer states. So I, I encourage people to check those out. The American Cancer Society has a very good website as well um, with lots of sort of basic information about breast cancer in particular. Um, so those are the sites that I typically refer patients to if they're um, curious. We're talking with Dr. Christina Bowen, a medical oncologist here in Atlanta, uh, about her facet of care uh, for the patient dealing with breast cancer. Is there information that you feel like from a physician's perspective that you really feel like uh, uh, someone who's just, they're just starting, you know, they've just gotten diagnosed and maybe they're just getting their appointment, they're waiting. Uh, what, what, what do you think is, you know, some of the best information that you, you could offer that person who's just getting ready to get started in, in their care? Maybe they're not to you just yet, but they're just starting to, oh, my gosh, I've got cancer. This, you know, what would you say to that person from, from that I perspective? Would, I would uh, encourage them not to jump to any uh, conclusions or assumptions about what's going to happen to them or what kind of treatment they're even going to need because, again, every cancer is unique. A lot of patients are diagnosed very early on uh, and have a very good prognosis, uh, especially in this day and age. A lot of patients are, are cured, often with surgery alone. They come to see me and they're probably already cured, but I say, okay, well, let's take some tamoxifen or let's do this and that just to ensure, just to, to make ourselves feel even more confident that you're already cured. So a lot of patients have a very good prognosis and um, and it's hard to, to remember that. I'm sure for a lot of patients when they first find out they have cancer, I think human nature minus to assume the worst, but, uh, but I would uh, encourage them to take a deep breath and talk to their doctor about their situation and their prognosis and their treatment options. And, and uh, it, it's, it, it's, um, it takes time, I think, for people to wrap their heads around what's happened to them and what 
you know, what this means for them and their future and their, their health and their, uh, their plans. But uh, I think uh, with, uh, with a lot of education and, and some patients, I think most patients get there pretty quickly. Uh, that, that, that's, um, you know, I, I, I really myself, I've not dealt with cancer yet in, in my life. Hopefully I'll, I'll be able to avoid it. But, I mean, it, it's, it's nice to have folks that, you know, understand that, you know, like you talked about, you're, you're as much as anything, you're educating the patient. And I think that that part right there, um, that's one of the reasons why I'm pleased to be able to have this forum is to be able to get information out there that might be able to help take away some of the, the, the negative aspects of the experience. Just, you know, just because you say it's, it's a lot of it is just fear and anticipation, not knowing what's going to happen to me and automatically assuming the worst before we ever get into it and find out, oh, wow, our, our course may not have been as drastic as we thought. But, um, you know, w- once you've kind of got in and you've got your treatment plan, we've got Dr. Wiggers here on the radiation side of things and obviously not, um, you know, a small part of this equation because from what I understand, particularly if we do breast preserving type surgery, we're certainly going to need or most likely need some radiation therapy. So uh, at what point do we kind of bring radiation into into this picture? Well, um, sometimes Jenny will call me up front, and uh, especially if the patient has uh, questions regarding lumpectomy and whole breast radiation or mastectomy. Maybe they can't make the decision about what type of treatment they want. So she'll call me ahead of time and say, we could just, you know, talk to them about it, talk to them about pros and cons. And then other patients are seen after mastectomy. We, even though somebody's had a full breast mastectomy, sometimes there are indications when they still need radiation therapy. So if they had a large tumor or positive or close margins or large um, multiple lymph nodes, those patients will also need radiation. And so that's when we all work together as a team approach and uh, do the timing with surgery, radiation, plastic surgery, and um, just get a good treatment plan for the individual patient. From what I understand, there's a number of different ways that you can deliver the radiation therapy from implantable radioactive seeds that either may stay or come out or, you know, external beam. Tell me a little bit about how we decide what how we're going to deliver the radiation if that turns out to be part of the case that I need to have some radiation to manage this this lesion. Yeah, so the the standard radiation that everybody knows about is the whole breast radiation Monday through Friday and um the standard treatment regimen used to be for six and a half weeks. And depending on the patient's nodal status and pathology, it depends on the size of the field whether additional lymph nodes are included. And then we also have what we call Uh, for lack of a better calling, uh, the Canadian protocol. So we have 12-year data now that says we can take our, in some selected patients, our standard uh, six-and-a-half-week treatment, and actually their treatment is done in 16 treatments or three weeks in a day. So kind of think about it if you cook your brownies at a different temperature. It's just a little faster. Um, (laughs) But in selected patients, they have the same cure rate and the same side effect rate. You have to be thin. Um, A large breast um, would get too much fibrosis. And you have to have lymph node negative to do the Canadian protocol. So that's something we talked to them about. And then another type of treatment that you mentioned is brachytherapy, or where we put the radioactive source actually inside the breast. So that works really well, especially if somebody has a very large breast. We do it in early-stage disease, lymph node-negative patients. 
And if there's the appropriate candidate, that's when Dr. Amerson would also call over and say, is this a good candidate for brachytherapy? And we would talk to him about the pros and cons about the brachytherapy versus the whole breast radiation. And that she would put a balloon inside the cavity and the balloon has a catheter coming out of it, which the radioactive source goes in and out of the catheter, and they're treated twice a day for five days. I see. So I come in, and, and we instill the, the radioactive seeds, and then we take it out. Yeah. I see. Um, you know, I know that um, as it comes to our reconstruction and, and trying to plan, what are we going to do for reconstruction if we have to have, you know, done more of a major surgery to treat the cancer? Tell me kind of how, you know, because I know, I know that the type of reconstruction that we're going to opt for can, can you know, can affect your plan and vice versa. So, you know, how does that flow in terms of, you know, your, your conversations with the patient for type of radiation and then also type of reconstruction that we would, you know, hope to achieve? You know, your t you know when you start talking with Dr. Chang, how, how does that type of conversation flow and when does it happen? Um, well, it happens when I see the patient and I, Dr. Chang and I will talk and um, she really, really wants to know whether or not this patient needs radiation because it's going to change what she does with her reconstruction. Radiation can make the area tighter. Um, it can cause difficulties with fibrosis around an implant. And our, of course, our number one goal is local control and to keep the cancer from coming back. Mm -hmm. And if the patient needs it, our second goal is to treat them so well that Dr. Chang doesn't know they've had radiation when we're done. So <laughs> then, well, then we've really done a good job. But um, she can tell you the, what she will do differently. Um, say, I have a patient with radiation. Yes, yes that's very true. Um, when you are dealing with a patient and trying to figure out what the best step or the bet best uh, option for reconstruction is, I try to get um, Jenny, Dr. Emerson, and Dr. Wiggers involved to see if this patient potentially will need radiation in the future. And that's because radiation, as Dr. Wiggers mentioned, has side effects, and there are long-term effects. So I have to change certain decisions or try to see um, how I'm going to work around the effects of radiation. In the old days, most of the, the physicians used to delay the reconstruction. Uh, we used to let them do get right. the mastectomy, get the treatment done, get the radiation, and then do a delayed reconstruction. Mm -hmm. But um, nowadays, uh, fortunately, we there are certain things that we can do differently. So patients can at least have some sort of uh, start in the reconstruction. One of the things that we can do, or one of the things that I prefer to do, is do an immediate reconstruction at the time of uh, the mastectomy with Dr. Amerson. But if I know that some uh, patient needs radiation after the surgery, instead of go recurring to, uh, you know, going to a flap-based reconstruction, I try to use tissue expanders. Now, expanders are, I call them fancy implants. They are structured a little bit differently than a, a, the permanent implant, but they can actually be adjusted, deflated, or expanded, and they can, be, they, I can, they can actually withstand the, the effects of the radiation better. So um, I try to do the, an expander uh, reconstruction first. I let Dr. Wiggers do her regimen of radiation. It usually lasts six to seven weeks, and I try to coordinate with her to see if I could either um, fully expand the patient before the treatment or try to achieve that expansion right after the radiation before the fibrosis comes in. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by, you know, a couple of things. I mean, for one, I mean, it's... 
there's there's some linear progression in terms of my you know my diagnosis. I go for some surgical treatment to uh, get my, uh, my lesion removed. But I mean, I'm impressed by the fact that we really kind of have to do some down the road planning. Um, all the way out through reconstruction very early on. I mean, I, it sounds as though you're, you're right in there, you know, very near after diagnosis. Hey, I've got this patient. They're, they're dealing with this type of cancer, and, you know, this is what we're looking at. I mean, you're, you're getting involved, at least from a planning perspective, very soon into the patient's care. Yes, it's actually, it really helps with the outcome, um, and that's why it's so important to work in a team. And having access and having the, the physicians that work with you available is really very helpful. Um, if you, you know, because everything changes, um, the treatment of the cancer comes first, always. But if we can do some restoration and do some reconstruction in the meantime of the course of the chemotherapy or during uh, during the radiation, it really helps with timing and it really helps uh, with the emotional recovery of the patient. So I can kind of see, you know, maybe, maybe I'm just getting into the tunnel, but I know that I'm going to come out in the light at the end and I can kind of have an idea of where I'm going to end up and that I'll have a little bit of a normalcy at the end, most likely based on what you're saying that, um, you know, I can kind of see the end before I get started in a way. Right. A lot of patients come to the plastic surgeon asking for or, or trying to look for the positive aspect of the whole journey and giving them this um, encouragement or at least a, uh, some sort of uh, planning so that they will be restored and they will feel great and they will look beautiful again. It's very helpful, I think, with the recovery with the, of the patient. As it as it deals with uh, the reconstructive side of things, is there, you know, how do you determine, you know, what you're going to do? I mean, obviously, I know that if we're going to have to do some radiation, that can, you know, kind of guide or limit, uh, you know, or change what what type of reconstruction we would do. But I mean, is there kind of a a typical one, you know, uh, m method of reconstruction that you go to more often than not, or are there are several options, and we kind of lay it out. I know, I know a little bit in prostate cancer. There's, there's, you can do, you know, radiation, or you can just, you know, do kind of a total approach and not necessarily. Right. You may be able to avoid some degree of radiation in the in the ladies. Do you have kind of a more of you can expect this, or or there's options that we can choose from, kind of like we did earlier. There's ABC similar. There's some choices that you can make with the patient that determines what you're going to do as a reconstructive uh, process. Yes, fortunately, we have several options for reconstruction. Um, I think the most common uh, way to do reconstruction is an implant-based reconstruction, especially nowadays. And the... Um, Prior to the advancement in the, the implants and all the prosthetics, I think we were doing a lot more surgeries based on flap. What's, flap means that you actually take tissue, uh, skin, subcutaneous tissue, or uh, muscle from an other, another area of your body to make the breast. Um, and I think, you know, the most common uh, uh, surgery that a lot of people ask about or um, already hear about before even coming to see you is the expander based plus the implant uh, based reconstruction. A lot of people ask me about what they're called 
tram flap. Right. That is the old traditional uh, flap surgery that involves the lower half of your abdomen and takes a little bit of a muscle of your abdominal wall. That used to be like the the gold standard reconstruction in the uh, reconstruction in the old days. And then they also, you know, there's another there's different types of flaps. For example, the latissimus flaps, the reconstruction that uh, some people will need or ask about. And I think the decision is made based on a lot of factors, but the, the number one is, you know, the, can- the factors that involve the cancer. How large is it? How, where is it located? And which breast? Um, you know, a lot of people ask about nipple, uh, you know, being able to be spared or not these days, and that's something that I have to uh, work with Dr. Amerson about, <laughs> whether they can do the, have the nipple-sparing mastectomy or not. Uh, that also changes. Uh, that also what they need afterwards. Do they need chemotherapy first? Or are they going to need chemotherapy afterwards? Do they need it immediately? Uh, do I have do I have time to do a little bit at least of my reconstruction, or do they really need to get to the chemotherapy treatment right away after mastectomy? Then the radiation, uh, you know, like we spoke about, just do they need it if, uh, after the surgery? Then we try to approach it differently so they can have the best outcome later. Mm-hmm. I. Uh I'm, I'm curious, whenever I'm trying to decide, you know, we, we have, you know, here in, in the studio, we're talking to the, the specialists that deal with breast cancer here on Top Docs Radio. We've got Dr. Amerson, Dr. Wiggers, Dr. Bowen, and Dr. Chang uh, that comprise a multi-specialty team uh, from a number of different groups that treat the breast cancer patient today. And when I'm trying to decide who do I go see, who, who, when I'm trying to choose a group, I mean, obviously, our practice uh, is one that works with some cancer patients over time, so I can tell our audience that I would certainly send my, my loved one to be cared for by these physicians here, but if, if they don't have the luxury that I have of knowing you already, uh, how, do I, how do I choose who to go see? What would you be your best advice in terms of trying to find a, uh, a provider? I, I, it sounds to me like, um, you know, with, with this group here, I, I know going in that, that all members of the team that are going to have to treat me are going to be communicating very closely and on an ongoing basis. But do you have maybe advice of any kind about how, how to select somebody that, that, you know, how would you choose your doctor? What would you, what, are there questions that you would ask um, when you're going to see somebody to determine, is this the oncologist I should see or is this the radiation oncologist that I should go see? I mean, what would you want to know as a patient uh, who's going to be treated yourself? Well, you want to see somebody who sees a lot of what you have. <laughs> so um, uh, I think, you know, word of mouth is one way I think uh, people find the physicians that they ultimately hook up with. Um, I mean, obviously, the first the first person that a, a patient sees when they're diagnosed with breast cancer is, is often the surgeon. And I think that recommendation probably comes from the, uh, you know, primary care doctor or the gynecologist or whoever has, uh, you know, made the initial breast cancer diagnosis. And then from there, it's it kind of... Uh, who do you know? Who do you like to work with? And who who do you respect? So, um. yeah, and I think a lot of what happens is I, I get the the referral from the primary care person or the OBGYN, but then I'll say, and you need to see my friend Christina Bowen, or you need, you know, and a lot of it's determined by location. You know, folks mm-hmm. will come see me from Gwinnett, or for, you know, so if they live in Gwinnett, I'd say you should have your radiation up with Dr. Leela Max, or you know, or see Chris Hagen, so you know, or. So there's luckily we have a really good set of folks throughout Atlanta that I feel very comfortable with. Um, so a lot of times I'll be the one that makes the referrals to the you know to the other folks and everything like that. But 
but you know we're just we're just really lucky and then just these are all my friends at Northside that you know help me take care of the patients so um, I think we're all very comfortable with each other and we all feel very good about you know I have no doubts that any of these fine physicians are not going to take the best care of my patient right you know and so I think we're very lucky to have that tight-knit of a community at Northside obviously you know if I'm looking at credentials board certifications fellowships things like that are going to be valuable in in regard to being you know a little bit more probably uh, skilled or at least highly educated in some of the more recent things I guess any other things that you can think of that would be important for someone to consider I mean just I mean obviously how often do you work on this type of cases is a big deal I think that's really a, a big question is how often do you you know how many surgeries a week in my situation, you know, patients will ask me, how many surgeries a week do you do? You know, what, uh, how long have you been doing this for? You know, so I think those are questions that are important. How many surgeries a week do you do? A lot. A lot. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, probably 12. What do you think? I don't A lot. At least. <laughs> yeah. And so it sounds like when, as it relates to my radiation therapy, if I need radiation, being close or relatively close to where I'm going to be receiving treatment is is important. Kind of like when if they end up with us at, at some point, we, we treat you five days a week. So exactly. same for you. Same for us. Yeah, it's five days a week, Monday through Friday, and for week after week. So we, we usually look, even if I see a patient, that I look at where they're from and you know, if they're from Canton, we have our Northside facility in Canton, so I call up Dr. Pete Possert, and you know, or we'll find someone that's close to them because that's a long haul to drive back and forth for so many for in your in and out in the of the radiation facility in 15 minutes. So, you you want to find a place that's close to home. Is there is there any way that you know? I, I believe that um, you know, the, with regards to radiation, is there any way to evaluate you know? Same thing with our surgeon. We can ask, you know, how many of these do you do? I mean, is it the same kind of thing with with our radiation oncologist? Do we ask kind of, you know, how often or, or a particular type of cancer? Yeah. Or how do you evaluate? I would say for breast that? cancer because it it's so prevalent. Unfortunately, all radiation oncologists are very skilled in, in breast cancer treatment. So, you know, whoever you're referred to, you're going to be in good hands. Okay, that's useful information. And then from a plastics perspective, same kind of thing. You you do, I know in your practice, some aesthetic procedures, Dr. Chang, um, but at the same time you put a very heavy focus in your you know, daily routine in, in terms of treating the breast cancer patient. Yes. I think uh, um, you are referred to a certain plastic surgeon because the breast surgeon that you have already knows if, whether that plastic surgeon does a lot of the reconstruction or not. So that's, you know, the referral base is a great thing to listen to or to follow. But also um, I tell my patients in, when they're between two or three plastic surgeons, I tell them, you know, plastic surgery is a very long road. You want to be with the surgeon that you feel most comfortable with because it's almost a marriage. You will see me a lot, and I will be taking care of you a lot. So that you really have to put faith and trust in the plastic surgeon that, that they will do the best, whatever is best for you. Mm-hmm. How long will I be seeing each of you once I've once I've come for your care and you've done you know in you know in Dr. Amerson's case you've done surgery and so you 
hopefully won't be having to do surgery on me again and hopefully I, after I go through my radiation care. But I mean, how I know I still have to come back and be seen by probably each of you, at least for a good period of time. Tell me a little bit about that. You know, I'll start back with you. We were talking with Dr. Chang, plastic surgery. How, how long am I going to be coming back and being seen by you? So uh, reconstruction requires several steps. Uh, unfortunately, there's very, a very small portion of patients who can have just one surgery and they're done. So they required an average of a two to three uh, surgeries uh, um, until we achieve the goal of a full restoration. And that can take six to 12 months um, uh, during the time of, of the treatment. So they see me almost a year or end afterwards too. So I have patients for several years So you years get to know already. them really well and I'm I, sure that they're going to yes. be following up with, <laughs> with you as long, a, a long time as well, Dr. Bowen. That's, that's true. Typically patients uh, uh, continue to see the medical oncologist for a number of years. It can vary, but um, oftentimes a big part of how, how we treat patients are with the hormonal blocking medications that are available to help further reduce the risk of, of uh, recurrence of their breast cancers, medicines like tamoxifen or one of the aromatase inhibitors, oral medications that go on for 5, 10, sometimes 15 years, kind of depending on the, the patient's situation and the scenario. But um, we obviously continue to see patients for as long as they're on treatment, and then even thereafter, oftentimes they'll come uh, infrequently, but uh, we keep in touch for quite a while usually. From from the perspective of the team, it sounds like you may be one of the people that I get to know the best or you know, at least the longest in terms of my, of my care. I'm going to be following up with you for a long time after I've become officially a, a survivor. Exactly. Exactly. And, and what about you, Dr. Wiggers? I mean, will I be coming back for follow-up with, with my radiation oncologist very long? Not very long. I mean, not as long. Dr. Bowen's kind of the head coach, the medical oncologist, and then Dr. Amerson doing this. Um, she's going to keep doing mammograms and MRIs. So with this great team, I'm going to make sure they're over all the short-term side effects. So I go three-month follow-up, then six-month, then a year. And then if they're having really close follow-up with their other physicians, I'll tell them to call me if there's any problems at all. I, I know that, you know, that it's very normal to experience at least a little bit of change in the skin or the tissue where I'm getting my radiation during or at least right after my, my treatment just because, I mean, you know, radiation, obviously, it takes, takes out the, the cancer cells, but it's going to affect some other normal tissues in there. But uh, what is what is, you know how long does that usually take the you know the the acute phases if you will of, of radiation the changes that you might have the redness or or tenderness or things like that how long does that usually last so i usually see them back 6 weeks after they complete their radiation therapy and by then maybe just some skin tanning a little hyperpigmentation so most of the changes are gone in the first 6 weeks and does that then kind of normalize a little bit afterwards after, after a period of time as well? Or is it, you know, is it something I can kind of anticipate I might be able to see just at least a little bit? How, how does it flow? Yeah, maybe a, a little tan line. The, um, the thing we really look at is any fibrosis or shrinkage, and especially if an implant's been placed. Is, are, are those types of things, when you talk about fibrosis, obviously, you know, rehabilitation wouldn't change fibrosis necessarily, but from a range of motion or things like that, yeah. would rehabilitation of some kind be useful we for work, We We love our re rehabilitation team because um, they're another part of this whole group. And I've had patients that had scarring, and they work with them with massage or arm range of motion, and um, they, they can achieve incredible results. So, so, so in addition, now you you'd be the person that would say, 
you know, after your radiation therapy, or I, I, don't, I, I would assume it'd be after I'm completed with my therapy, but you'll send me on to that rehab specialist to do some follow-up. And, and sometimes even before we start, you know, they have a little hard time getting their arm above their head for radiation after the surgery, mm -hmm. and we'll get them to work and, you know, stretch the muscles. And I always... Um, call up the surgeons and say, is this too early? Can I, you know, I want them to stretch. And uh, Dr. Chang might say, wait another week. But, uh, we make an e uh, even balance of getting them stretched out before we get started too. I see. Well, the, I, you know, that's yet another, you know, probably resource we have to talk to at some point. And, yeah. in, in, you know, in learning uh, from one of our patients last week, I guess there's some, uh, some differences in terms of rehabilitation. There's some folks that uh, they focus on the patient who's had radiation versus a patient who's had a, a stroke, for example, that you know that that they can have a little bit of different approach to that patient. And, and from a radiation standpoint, I think it's key for everybody to stretch and um, you know massage any hard or fibrotic areas. And if they do that throughout treatment, and then I tell you know just when you get in the shower, stretch your arm. Those are the patients that never skip a beat, and they have good range of motion and are feeling good throughout. You know, most of our patients, even during treatment, are like, come on, hurry up and treat me. I've got a tennis match to go to, and, you know, their quality of life is great. Well, I, I, I'd like for everybody to be able to follow up with you all. You know, uh, obviously, you're excellent resources of information and, and uh, certainly people that I would recommend uh, someone to go see if they're dealing with uh, a cancer, uh, particularly in our, in our case today, if they're dealing with breast cancer. So I'll start with you, Dr. Amerson, where we started today. Um, tell me a bit, little bit about your, you know, how do I get in touch with you? You're on the internet and social media. Tell we, we me about actually, that. Uh, we're not on social. We're pretty, <laughs> we're old fashioned. We're not in the game yet. But, um, but we do have a website, and that'd be www.breastcareatlanta.com. Okay, and I'll, you know, uh, with our social media, for the folks who listen in to us each week, we link up and, and, and list the, uh, the the web information and social media. How about you, Dr. Wiggers? Do you have a, a website or social media presence that the, the patients out there need to know about so they can get in touch with you? Uh, it would be the Northside Hospital website, and um, all the Northside physicians are listed through there. So go into the Find a Physician directory and uh, get that or, way? Uh, or Radiation there... Oncology So department. you actually have a kind of a page on the Northside website? I think so. Okay. <laughs> but if they, it's, is it northside.com, northside.org? Do you all know? I don't know. I would just I'll Google Northside. I'll, get, I'll, 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 I'll make sure I get that on, the, uh, on, on our social media and on our, on our uh, uh, Facebook page as well. How about, how about you, Dr. Bowen? Uh, Georgia Cancer Specialist has uh, gacancer.com is our website, so you can find uh, physicians in the offices that we practice in uh, on the website very easily. So it'll have all of your locations there. And Correct. I can see kind of who's close, and, and, and it talks about who focuses on what exactly. type of cancer, so that's exactly. useful as well. Mm -hmm. Um, are you on Twitter or Facebook yet? Not personally. Okay. <laughs> we don't have time. <laughs> it is northside.com for those out there listening, okay. by the way. And how about you, Dr. Chang? Tell us how we can find you on the We online. have uh, two websites. Well, our main website is artisanplasticsurgery.com. Uh, I have two other partners that do breast reconstruction as well. So we have actually made a second website dedicated to breast reconstruction, and it's Artisan Breast Reconstruction. Uh, and uh, there is a lot of um, patient information. They are before and after pictures. Oh, 
there are uh, links that we can actually give you uh, and, or contacts information of, uh, of other patients uh, who have gone through this experience that they can, they can share and get together or talk to. And we also have uh, video, video clips of uh, certain patients that have gone through this journey already, and they share their experience. So it's very helpful for the patients. Before we close, um, I know that uh, having been folks that are dealing with cancer patients for many years, are there other resources for you know from a support perspective that you feel like would be useful for a patient dealing with this to to know about you know from a support perspective that you you feel like they do a good job of giving patients you know information and you know uh, being around them help allay some of their fears? Is any you know anything that you could recommend from that perspective if they're going through care? There is actually a support group at Northside Hospital. There, are, the majority of the the people in that group are patients patients of ours who have set uh, set up a support group, and they are the great people. They actually come around after the surgery. They come to the hospital, and they come talk to our patients. They help them with little tiny details like belts or garments. They tell them like how they talk to them about their experience. So they are great people to go to to talk to. Okay, great. Anything else that you guys can recommend? I think Northside in general has a support, like, that's a hospital, one that's, you know, they have the nurse navigators. And I think whatever hospital that the patient is having their surgery, they usually have a good support group for breast cancer. And so I think that would be, you know, Gwinnett or Piedmont or any of those, you know, will have that. I know Northside does. They have a group of nurse navigators. It sounds like it'd be helpful for, you know, if someone can, to be involved with that sort of, you know, um, meeting or or resource group that they can get some, uh, you know, level of camaraderie and and measure of hope from people that have already gone through it, I would suppose. Absolutely. I think that's just knowing that all these people have walked in front of you and are doing well really makes a difference, I think. Well, I want to say thank you very much to uh, these physicians today. And, again, I I would readily recommend uh, my family members go to any one of you here. And I I know how much uh, you you give up to to come here and and, uh, share information with our patients on uh, uh, Top Docs Radio today. Uh, For those of you out there, link up with us on uh, online. Uh, You can listen to the uh, podcast of the radio show here at uh, www.topdocs.com businessradiox.com. Um, we're on Twitter at Top Docs on BRX, and we're also on Facebook.com slash Top Docs on BRX. You can link up with the Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia on Twitter at HBOMDGA. We, our website is www.HBOMDGA.com, and then, of course, it's Facebook as well at Facebook.com slash HBOMDGA. I'm C.W. Hall, uh, your host here at Top Docs Radio. Thank you all for for, uh, your time today, uh, both in the audience and here in the studio, and we'll see you all next week. 